You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Uh, turn to Matthew, specifically chapter 5. I, I have two verses I want to read, and it's about the Bible. It's Jesus talking about the Bible. It's Matthew five 17. I'll give you a second to turn there. And I really like it when people bring their own Bible. I bring my own Bible. I think it's cool if you bring your own Bible, because then you get to write in it and stuff and highlight stuff. It's a cool thing to do. It's what I do, my spare time. Uh, Matthew five seventeen. This is Jesus talking about the Old Testament. I'm going to read it uh, in the. I'm going to read it in the KJV. Actually, that's the King James version. It's got the these and the thous and stuff like that. And Jesus says this, Matthew five seventeen. Think not that I have come to destroy the Torah and the prophets. That's the Old Testament writings. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets are the writings and the Psalms, things like that. So Jesus says, don't think that I've come to destroy those Old Testament writings. And he says, I have not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. For verily, I don't know what verily means, but it's pretty serious. For verily I say unto you, and he says this, till the heavens and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle. Those are two fun words I like to say a lot. Not one jot or tittle, and I'll actually explain those later, shall pass, shall in no wise pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In the NIV it says this. It might be a lot easier to understand. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you for the Bible. God, we call it the Word of God because in your Bible it says that the Word of God has been breathed life into. And God, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for these words that have been written down and recorded for us. And God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds today that the, to the truth that is in the Bible and the truth of the Bible, that it is true, it is trustworthy, and that it is your God-breathed word to us. So we praise you and we love you. And everyone screamed? Amen. Pretty good. Pretty good today. All right. Uh, I, I've lived, uh, my dad was Air Force. Anybody else Air Force? Woohoo, cadets. Um, and I've lived in nine different homes. I've lived in three different countries. I've been to 43 countries. And I've kind of, uh, just because my dad was in the military and we moved around, I got to travel a lot. And so it was really weird when I was living in Utah uh, in, in college that I would meet up with an old friend from high school. Because here I am in Utah and my high school was in Germany. And I met up with this guy and I was like, bro, how's it going, man? And back in high school, I wasn't saved. And so we had a lot of catching up to do. What have you been doing since? And, and he, he wasn't a Christian. But I invited him to our church, and he had just moved to Utah, so he, he didn't know anybody. He, I was his only friend. He was like, man, yeah, I'll come to church with you. So he started coming to church with me, and he came to everything. For, the, for th- like three months, he came to our little college group. He came to church on Sunday. He came to uh, like our picnics and uh, everything, retreats. And yet he still wasn't a Christian. He, he'd always talk like, well, you guys believe this. You're Christians. And he was very respectful. But he would always say, but I'm kind of an atheist. I don't know what I believe. I'm, I'm not a Christian. And I remember sitting down with him one time and uh, trying to explain to him, kind of witness to him, if you want to use that term, about why the Bible is the Word of God. And I explained to him the things that I'm going to talk about today, right here in the Mill Sunday School. I explained to him about prophecies and how they were fulfilled in the Old Testament in Jesus. And it was, it was, I just sat with him for an hour, and he listened to me. He was very respectful. And he listened, and at the end of that, he said, you know what? I believe. I believe that the Bible is true. And I was like, yes! You're saved. You're awesome. But he said this. He said, I know that the Bible's true. I believe it's true, but I'm just, I'm just not ready to commit my life to Christ. I'm just not ready to believe that God really loves me. Or he, he went on to, you know, he had some personal reasons for why he didn't want to commit his life over to Christ, but he knew that it was true. And I want to get back at the end of Sunday school, I'll get back to that story of, as to why he, he believed that this book is true, but he didn't, he wasn't willing to commit his life to God. But I think that one of the, one of the huge steps for people, I think, I think it's, let me say it like this, that people often don't believe in God and then they'll, they'll use the Bible to say, oh, I don't believe in the Bible because this or this and it's not really true. Um, but it's, 
It's almost coming from the perspective, I don't believe in God, so therefore I don't believe in the Bible. And my friend believed in the Bible, yet he didn't believe in God. It was very interesting. And I want to get back to that story at the end of Sunday school. But before I do that, I want you to know that we're talking about the Bible all this month. Why the Bible is the Word of God. We're going to specifically answer that question with this month. And that we have a great month lined up. If you're newish to Sunday school, there's little cards on your table. You can grab it. I think there's like two or three per table. And you can fill out your name and information. And in exchange for giving us your information at the back on your way out. We'll give you a free CD just for saying thanks for coming to the Mill Sunday School. And so uh, the Mill Sunday School exists as part of the Mill. That's our college and 20-somethings ministry on Friday nights. And it exists to train people, to take people from the shallow end of the pool on their way to the deep end of the pool and no Christian doctrine, no Christian theology. And so this whole year we have planned out, September all the way to next fall, we have planned out as a curriculum. And I've, I've told you this, I'm really excited that since we've set it out as a curriculum and I'm actually working on my doctorate, I'm kind of qualified to, to teach on a college level, that this Sunday school, are you ready for this? this? If this is new to you, it'll just rock your mind. But if you just come to Sunday school, keep attendance, you'll get college credit for coming to the Mill Sunday School. There'll be a few other things. There'll be a few other assignments. There'll, there'll be a small amount of money, a fee that you have to pay to the college um, to get that credit. But you'll get credit just for coming to Sunday School. How sick is that? Yes. If you're interested in that, uh, hopefully, if you signed up last week, hopefully you received an email. If you didn't receive an email, or if you weren't here last week, at the back there's a sign up for King's College information. I'll send you another email this week and update you about how the syllabus is coming along, how that process is working. But welcome to the Mill Sunday School. If you would please turn in your, uh, your skillet, that's what we call these, turn to the very front in your notes. It says, last week was a good blank. Last week was a good defense. And sometimes your best offense is good defense. (laughs) Last week was a good defense. I want you to think about this for a second. You could either think back to last week if you were here, but if you weren't here, I want you to think about the question. If someone asked you, is the Bible true? Is the Bible the word of God? And you believe that it is. What would you tell them about the word of God? Why would, how would you explain to them that the Bible is true? I want to ask that as a discussion question in just a second. So start thinking, get your, get your little what, cogs in your head working. <laughs> I'm just rambling up here. Last week we talked about three things, the, the three defense models. Um, someone might say, if they don't believe in the Bible, they might say, the Bible's just all made up. It's a myth. We talked about how someone, if they don't believe in the Bible, might say, oh, the Bible just has tons of contradictions. And last week we talked about how if someone doesn't believe in the Bible, they may just say, you know what, the Bible is a nice book. It's, it's got some truth in it, but there's other books that have truth in it. The Bible's a nice book. I'm going to hold the Bible with other things. And so we came against those different things last week. And some of you might have different answers than we talked about last week. So I want you to turn to your little buddies at your table or, or around you. You can do it by yourself if, uh, if you want. But turn to, to some friends and say, let's list, and just a very simple list of directions a conversation might go if someone said, do you believe the Bible's true? And you say, yeah. And they say, why? Why do you believe the Bible is true? What are things you can show me or tell me about? Do you understand what you have to do? So you're just listing some things. Maybe if you're at a table, appoint some person as a scribe and as a secretary and as the manager. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> it's easy. Just, just come up with a list of why do you think the Bible's true. Do you get it? All right. Ready, get set, Go. Bill, would you mind getting me some water? A little cup of water. Thanks, Bill. What?
I'm just going to give you like another 60 seconds, if that's possible, to wrap up your ideas. 60 seconds. All right, we're going to have a little fun and games here, um, <clears throat> meaning a little group discussion, you know, just a small group discussion, no big deal. Um, is there anyone willing to start us off? Stand, you have to stand up and say it loud so everyone can hear one of the things you may have listed off as a group. So you're just naming one, and it's, you, you kind of have to be succinct so we can get to a few. Anybody want to start us off? I think I built it up too much, sorry. Yes, go ahead. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Yeah, there's no contradictions in the Bible about the main message of truth. Very good, very good point. We talked about that one last week, how the Bible's written over all, this, all these years, all these different authors, different lives, and they all write about God, and yet it doesn't contradict in the message of salvation and the main truths. Excellent. Anything else? Don't make me call on people. I'll do it. <laughs> Just kidding. This is my wife, by the way. She's really cool. I think she's really... She's really hot, in my opinion. <laughs> Throw that out there. Yes, no archaeological finding has ever contradicted a truth or a historical event in the Bible. Excellent. I saw a hand over here-ish, I think. Yes, sir, go ahead. Yes. Very good. His last name is Chasson. I love that last name. He is a genius. He should be a French scholar. He, he, said, uh, he said, basically he said, what we're going to talk about today is that the Bible is consistent. It has remained consistent. It's been copied, even though this is well before the printing press. Uh, it's been copied and handed down in an exact manner so that we can know almost beyond a shadow of a doubt that what the original author wrote is what we have today in the original languages. It's an amazing, it's an amazing, amazing book. And I kind of want to share that story with you today. Excellent. I think we'll just leave it with that then. I'm sure I saw other hands, but if you turn in your notes to the, to the second thing, it says every blank is important. And you may have put something there. Some people like to guess what I'm about to say. I bet you can't get, get, guess this. <laughs> Actually, you probably can. Every tittle <laughs> is important. T-I-T-I-T-T-L-E. Every tittle is important. What in the world is a tittle? Let me tell you. Here is the letter I. If I was to draw the letter I, a tittle, a jot, the, the, word we just, the verse we just read in the King James Version says, every jot and tittle will not pass away until everything has been established. And a jot is a line, like an I, an iota in the Greek, an I in the English, and a, and a, and a tittle is the smallest writing, a dot. It's in the Hebrew, it's a, it looks like a comma hanging above the words. It's, it's called a yod. And uh, a tittle is the smallest dot you can make on a paper that signifies something in a written language. And so every tittle is important. Every tittle is important. Let me tell you a story. Uh, it's an old story from the time, like before cell phones, before text messaging. They used to have something called a telegraphs by Morse code. And uh, a lady telegraphs her husband. She says this, have found wonderful bracelet, period, price, dollar sign, seven, five, comma, zero, zero, period. That's 75,000 bucks. The, the rest of the telegraph says, may I buy it, question mark. She sends that to her husband. Her husband must have got the message, like I imagine I would get the text message or telegraph and just be ticked. And so he writes back this, no, comma, price too high, period. But the cable operator forgot to put the comma in. So it said, no price too high. And so she went ahead and she bought the bracelet. The comma 
is a form of a tittle. And every tittle in the Bible is important. And you might ask yourself, how do we know? Let's say you're, you lived in, the, in 1946, because something very important is going to happen in 1947. But let's say you lived in 1946, and you, and you knew the Hebrew manuscript scholar, and, you, and you're having a conversation with a Hebrew manuscript scholar. And you're like, how do we know that this Old Testament that I'm reading right now is the same thing that, that it's been handed down through generations? How do we know that tittles haven't been added or misplaced? How do we know that whole sentences? How do we know that whole words? How do we know that verses, paragraphs, haven't been misplaced or added in since the original writing of the scripture? And the manuscript scholar might say, well, uh, we don't really have, this is 1946, we don't really have hard evidence, but let me, let me explain that how Hebrew, uh, how Hebrew scribes copied things back in the day. And this is still true. Uh, we know that Hebrew scribes back in the day, they would, have, they would write on scrolls. That's the picture on the, the front of your cover. That is a scroll there. And you can see that words are in columns, in paragraphs there. Everything's in a column. And if there was an error in a column, the whole page would be ripped out and thrown away. Because everything had to line up. It wasn't just like, you have to get it word for word right. And as, as long as, you, you know, you're, you're writing maybe 10 pages, you're writing maybe 9 pages if you write a little bigger. No, it has to be exact. Everything, every letter in the column has to fit exactly. Letter per letter in the column. And there's a story that says that if, if a scribe was doing his thing, copying down the Old Testament in Hebrew, and a king walked in, maybe you've heard this before, that the scribe would not stand up, would not greet the king, because what he was doing was more tedious, much more important than just greeting a king because he was trans copying the Old Testament, the, the writings of God, the God breathed word to us in the Old Testament. The Hebrew scholars believe that. Ancient Hebrew scribes knew that and they were copying it word for word. In fact, the Torah, that's the first five books of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The first five books, the law, there's 365 columns. Does that number ring a bell? Yeah, for, for, there's one for every day. And it, it just how, how organized the columns were, how organized every letter in that column had to be exact because there was no printing press back then. There was no copy machines. Everything was handwritten back then. And yet it remained perfect. It remained a, a whole copy exactly how it was written down, even though it passed thousands of years, hundreds of years. And uh, so you're talking to this manuscript scholar. Let's say you're talking to him in 1947, because something huge happened in 1947. We found something called, man, you guys are so smart, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We found those in 1947. And it, was, it seems like the coolest findings in the world are always kind of like random happenings. And it was like a, a, a boy, a Bedouin shepherd boy that had lost a goat and he was throwing rocks, and he threw a rock into a cave, and instead of like the clunking of a rock in a cave, it crashed. Something broke inside the cave, and so he crawled down in, found some stuff, told some people, they told some other people, archaeologists, (laughs) thank you. They came, checked it out, and they found tons of clay pots, and inside these clay pots were scrolls, either leather or they were made out of uh, papyrus. And there was lots of them. Let me tell you how many there were. There were 40,000 inscribed fragments, 500 books, all stuff dating back before Christ. That's amazing. That's really cool. And you may, have any of you seen the Dead Sea Scrolls? Like in a museum or something? It's probably the most, (laughs) let me say it like this. My friend Aaron was telling me a story about two little boys that were going to see, going to the museum to see the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were just wickedly excited. Like, oh my gosh, can't wait to see them. Because in their mind, what they heard, both of them, they heard, we're going to see the Dead Sea Snails. It's like, oh my gosh, awesome. They're going to be like slithering all over me, and like, they're Dead Sea Snails. are going to be awesome. And they get to the museum, and all there is is little tiny pieces of paper behind lots of glass that are like sealed, no oxygen. I mean, imagine a little boy thinking you're going to see the Dead Sea Snails. All you see is a tiny little piece of paper that looks old and got some writing you can't even read. Lame. (laughs) (laughs) thought the Dead Sea Snails were going to attack me. That'd be sweet. Um, (laughs) Here's what makes the Dead Sea Scrolls so amazing. Because before 1947, the oldest manuscript that we had for the Old Testament was 900 A.D., 
And so you could, someone could argue, and let's say it's 1946, someone could have argued that like prophecies about Jesus, this is the direction we're going now, so pay attention, that, that the prophecies of Jesus could have been added on after Jesus came. You could have changed the, the writing to make Jesus the fulfillment of those prophecies because the oldest manuscript we had was 900 BC. After the Dead Sea Scrolls came, we have writings that date back before his coming. And, and some of these scrolls are the Isaiah scroll, which, which is 10 inches long, and it was rolled out. It goes 24 feet, which is about to the end of that last row there. That's a long, I mean, it's a totally intact Isaiah scroll. And what we find is if you look at the, the book of Isaiah in Hebrew and this scroll from before Christ came, it's identical. It's exact. It's been copied word for word, near perfect. I mean, there's, there's like a few. You could count them. The, the number of letters that are maybe in, may have been just uh, spelling errors or spelling variations in how a word was spelled after thousands of years. I mean, can you imagine that? It's amazing what we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So going back to this idea of the prophecy, like if you're watching a movie and uh, like after you watch Batman, you, you get out of it. Let's say you watch Batman on opening night a couple, uh, like a month ago now, I guess. Um, I just saw it, so I'm kind of lame. I t- and see it on opening night. But uh, imagine on opening night, right after you see Batman, um, you're like, dude, I totally knew that the Joker was going to make the Batman decide between his girl, girl, girlfriend and the DI, the district attorney. You're like, you didn't know that. Why didn't you call that before the movie started? Right? That's what you'd say. That's what I would say. And so maybe, maybe, and you'd, you'd say, did, did, he, did homeboy here when he was sitting down say that Batman was going to have to choose between the DI and his girlfriend at some point? And, and if, if they said yes, like during the movie, he called out right before it happened, dude, the Batman's going to have to call between his girlfriend and the DI. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen the movie, right? Don't look at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> my, my wife is, my wife is ex, the what? DA? Oh, district attorney. You're looking at me like I'm crazy because I am. What is a DI? I don't even know. <laughs> a DA, district attorney. Uh, my wife is really good about calling thing, calling shots as the movie's playing. Like, oh, good, these people are going to get together, I bet. But sure enough, by the end of the movie, they're like married, have kids. Or she's like, this person's going to die. And sure enough, like three seconds later, <laughs> they're dead. And she's really good at like calling shots before the movie happens. But if someone said, if someone watched the whole movie, then afterwards, as they're walking to the car, was like, yeah, I totally knew that they were going to get together. It's like, yeah, you knew that because you saw it. You didn't call it before it happened. So, yeah, of course, you're going to say that. But the Bible... See, the, what makes the Dead Sea Scrolls so cool is that they were right around the time of Christ. Right before Christ, we have this ancient manuscript saying the exact same thing as it was originally written thousands of years ago. The Isaiah Scroll, written around 43 B.C. That's a long time ago. That's a really long time ago. And um, did I say 43? I meant 433. Is that what I said? Struggling. I, I didn't have enough coffee this morning. Um, anyways... Look at your notes at the, at the next point here. It says, a blank message for us. And I want to say that there are, there are almost hidden messages for us. That's the, that's the word there for that blank. A hidden message for us. And I want to show you something that's, that I think is, is pretty interesting. It's pretty cool. Uh, it was shown to me a long time ago, a few years ago when I was in college. And uh, that we had this special speaker come in. It wasn't the mill. It was another group, another state I used to live in. Uh, there was like built up, this huge like deal was built. Don't miss this Sunday because we have this expert coming in. He's going to talk to us about this relevant thing about, and, that every college student should know, right? And so we, that day came around and this guy comes in. He's got this nice suit on. looked like a used car salesman. <laughs> no offense if there's any used car salesman. You know what I mean, right? And he starts and he's like, here's here. <laughs> basically it was all built up. Like he, here's this huge message that's totally relevant for all Christians. And he, he starts talking about, are you ready? The Nephilim. Do you know what the Nephilim are? As some of you may. If you don't know what it is, that's fine. There's two verses in the entire Bible that talk about Nephilim. These possibly mythological creatures, possibly real creatures. I don't even know. It's, it's a random verse that talks about how angels or demons had sex with humans and then had babies and these weird giants kind of roamed the earth. Weird. Is that a- a- applicable to anything in your life? No. And so, this guy started, 
I'm just like, what? Nephilim? What? He starts talking about the Nephilim, and he says, turn to Genesis 5. And he has this, he has this message that I kind of slept through. But uh, last week, I revisited this message that I originally slept through, and it's amazing. It gave me the willies. So turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to go over this really quickly, and you, you, you're probably going to want it written down. So I encourage you to write it down just to have it. Or have somebody next to you write it down. Because it's, it's only cool when you finish the whole thing. So uh, I'm going to go over this. Basically, Genesis chapter 5 is one of those chapters that you're like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Somebody begot somebody. Somebody had this kid. Blah, blah, blah. They lived so many years and blah, blah, blah. Then they had some more kids. And then this guy had somebody. And you're like, blah, blah, blah. But there's something really cool about Genesis chapter 5. There are 10 names. Look at verse, uh, I'm looking at verse 3 where it says, Adam lived 130 years and he had a son, his own likeness. And then he, he, then he had a son named Seth. There's 10 names in this chapter. And these names are important to us because in ancient culture, names really meant something. My name is Joe. Everybody say Joe. Joe. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> officially, my name is Joseph. It's, a, it's actually an ancient Hebrew name going back to Israel naming his son Joseph. Remember Joseph in Genesis that went to Egypt? And that name means something. I know what it means because it's my own name. It means he added. He added. And so, the, so basically the Lord added. Is, is a, Yosef is in Hebrew how you pronounce it. He added. And Israel named his son Joseph because at an old age he had another son. And he named him He added. And that was his name. And the people just knew. What's up? He added. What's up, dog? <laughs> that was his name. And in ancient culture, names usually meant something. Lots of us just have regular names that, that to us don't really mean anything. But people in ancient cultures chose names after words that really meant something. So these names, Adam. Does anyone know what the word in Hebrew, Adam, means? Adam? Yes, I heard it. Someone said man. It means human being. It means man. And I'm going to go through each one of these, and I highly encourage you to write it down. We're going to put, throw it up on the, the board, what these names mean. And I actually encourage you to write it. Mine is written right there on my own Bible. If you've brought a Bible of your own, you can write it right there. And I, I just encourage you to write in your Bibles. In fact, my, the color that I've chosen for all Old Testament prophecies concerning New Testament stuff or Jesus stuff is in green. And so if, if you're ever curious, you could, you could flip through my Bible up here and look for green underlinings or green highlightings, and it's stuff about Jesus in the Old Testament. Did you hear what I just said? Stuff about Jesus in the Old Testament. When was the Old Testament written? A long time ago, a long time before Jesus came, and yet there's prophecies about Jesus before he came in the Old Testament. I find that fascinating. That's why I said it gives me the willies. And so I'm going to show you this. It's kind of cool. It's, it's something that you might want to show a non-believer, but it takes a lot of time to kind of look up, and they, they would have to take your word for it that these words mean this in the Hebrew. So it's really more for us, but it's pretty doggone cool. I'm going to fly through it. Adam means man. Seth means the word appointed. Enosh, that's in verse 9, when Enosh lived 90 years, means mortal. Verse 12, Kenan. That means sorrow. Verse 15, it says Mahalalel. And that means the blessed God. Verse 18, it's a verb. Yarid, or we just pronounce it Jared. Verse 18, Jared means shall come down. It's a future tense verb. Will or future tense will come down. Did you get most of those? Do you need to go back? Okay, go back. Go back on the, on the PowerPoint. I'll give you another second to get those. Um, so Adam means man. Seth means appointed. These are all Hebrew words that people would have known what they mean. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. Leave that up for another second. Let, the, let, let them copy that. Basically, what this is going to be is, it, it's, to me, it, it gives me the willies because it's the gospel message, the, the message about how God is going to redeem his people right here in Genesis chapter 5. And so we have Yarid or Jared, meaning shall come down. That's verse 18. Uh, flip over to, uh, I have verse 21. Enoch means teaching. Uh, verse 25 is Mahuzalel. That means, it's, a, it's another future tense verb, meaning death will bring or death shall bring. His death will bring is what we have up there. Verse 28 is Lemek. And you might know that term from lament. A lament or a dis- lament means despairing. And verse 32 is Noah. You might, you, maybe you know that. I, I don't know. Some of you are really smart. Uh, Noah means rest or comfort. 
If you put those, you kind of put those together, and it, it seems like it's a message, at least to me, it seems pretty dang uncool, that a man appointed, so this is, this is going, about, going back to the, to the beginning of Adam, man appointed moral sorrow, that man, mortal means death, that the sorrow, a, a death sorrow entered in because man appointed it, is what I see, man appointed mortal sorrow. And then it says, the blessed God, Mahalalel, the blessed God, Jared, is shall come down teaching that his death, and that, that the verb is that the tense of his, his death shall bring a despairing or a lament rest. And since we, as New Testament believers, New Covenant believers, we know about Jesus, we know that the, his death was despairing. He died on a cross. It's very despairing, but it brought rest. We know that Jesus was God, that the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring a despairing rest. Does anybody have the willies? Okay, that's good. That's good enough, as long as a couple people have the willies. I, I think that's really cool. It's, it's kind of a hidden message in Genesis chapter 5. And I looked it up this week. I was like, was that dude that talked about the Nephilim really right? And so I looked it up and, and looked up each one of these Hebrew words, and those, that's what they mean. It's, it's amazing to me that that message in there is in there in this Genesis chapter 5. And Genesis chapter 5 was probably written by Moses, we think, compiled by Moses in like 2000 BC, 2000 years before Jesus came and his, God's divine plan was totally acted out. And I want to show you, um, I want to show you something even more cool. Um, Undernose says, there are prophecies of blank in the Old Testament. Do you know what that's going to be? Jesus. This is a Sunday school answer. Duh. Prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I, I really want you to realize that the Old Testament was written at least uh, hundreds of years, if not thousands. Different books were written a long time before Christ came, but well before Christ came, well before Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came. And I'm going to show you four prophecies. There's hundreds. I have a book up here that. Uh, is uh, Josh McDowell's The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's kind of a textbook, not something you'd sit down with a bubble bath and read. Uh, maybe you would. I mean, this is Sunday school. We've got a lot of weird people in here. So it's something I would do. Um, <laughs> don't, don't picture that. <laughs> people are in the front. Keep going. Come on, man. Stick with it. Uh, in here are prophecies. In here list exactly a hundred prophecies in the Old Testament now of the coming Messiah, Jesus being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who lived in Nazareth. That man, the God man who lived in Nazareth, the actual person. Over a hundred, actually, list a hundred, hundred prophecies of Jesus listed in this book. And it's pretty cool. You could pick this up, or you could go to websites and just type in prophecies of Jesus and actually look up, find them for yourself. I'm just going to show you four, and I think they're amazing. I think that they're each one of these four are beyond the control of the person claiming to be Messiah, and I'll explain what that means in just a second. But prophecies. Uh, give evidence, legitimate, is that a word? Legitimize the message. I had a friend in high school that after he became a Christian, lots of interesting things started happening to him. He became a Christian and you could say prophetic or future prediction, just weird stuff started happening right around the time he became a Christian. He became a Christian and he, he went to this party and it was, a, he, he, it was like, a, like a nice Saturday afternoon birthday party uh, of this high school girl and uh, her parents were in the basement hanging out and a party was going on upstairs. And when you first came in, they were going to play this little game where you have little pieces of paper, you write on the little piece of paper something, you put it in an envelope, you seal it, and she's then going to read all of these little notes at some point in her little birthday party. It's like a fun little game, right? And so lots of people were saying like things like, I'm the most beautiful girl in the world. And then so since she opens it up, she'd have to read it. I'm the most beautiful girl in the world. And everybody laugh. Oh, it's so true. Happy birthday. Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, fun little game. And uh, my friend, even, I asked him, what, what made you write this down? And he'll just say, well, I thought it was funny and random. And I was in high school, so funny and random rules. And he wrote down, he wrote down and, and then sealed it. He wrote down and said, believe me, period. You will read this with your shoes off. It's like random, you know, dumb, just random. He put a period, put it in an envelope, sealed it, and put it in the pile. 
Later on in the party, there was a discussion amongst my friend who had just become a Christian, some other people that went to my youth group. It was called Destiny. It was a pretty cool youth group. And uh, the, girl, the birthday girl was not a Christian, and yet she was having a conversation with some Destiny people from the youth group, and they were talking about the Bible and truth and Jesus and how Jesus came to save us. Basically, they were witnessing to the birthday girl. And my friend was one of those people in that group that was really promoting you know, the idea that Jesus can save us from all sins, that he was God himself, etc., etc. And then so that conversation ends at some point, and then the birthday game comes out, and she's got these stack of envelopes, and she's reading them. I'm the most beautiful girl in the world. And everybody's like, ah, it's so funny, la, la, la. And she's just reading these different cards. Some of them, of course, are inappropriate, and uh, some of them are just funny. And she, she gets to the one what my friend wrote, and right before she read it, her mom comes from upstairs and says, who's trekking mud all over the house? We just got new carpet. All right, everybody take off your shoes Everybody take off your shoes. There's mud all over the carpet. There's brand new carpet. And so everybody took off their shoes. She picks up the next envelope, opens it up, and it says, believe me, you'll read this with your shoes off. And everybody's like, eh. <laughs> what? Everybody thought, like, was that some kind of magic trick? What? Does it really say that? And she's like, yeah, it really says that. Weird. And she had a conversation with her mom. Like, mom, did, you, did someone come to you and ask, tell you to come upstairs and tell everybody to take their shoes off? at some point, right before I read this envelope, and she's like, what? No. What in the world? And it was just, it was really, I, I personally believe it was a little more than random. I think it had something to do with God, or prof- just weirdness, all right? I'm not going to get crazy on you. I just want to, I want to let you know that this girl became a Christian a couple weeks later, and this girl, as a part of her testimony, will say that her, a friend that witnessed to her gave her a birthday note that was sealed in an envelope. She had it in her hand. Her mom told everybody to take off her shoes, their shoes. She opened it up and it said, you will read this with your shoes off. And she just thought, that's, that's more random than randomness. That's a little more weird than random. I don't know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> and she became a Christian and that's part, that little story is a part of her testimony. I just think that's pretty cool. And what's even cooler is that there's Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming Messiah that are fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. And I want to show you four of them. I got time to show you four and talk about them. And I want you to turn to each one. And they're all going to be in the Old Testament, which is written at least hundreds of years. This first one, Micah, written at least a couple hundred years before Jesus came. Micah is a really small book of the Bible, but I'll, I'll give you time to find it. It's towards the very end of the New Testament, right before, uh, at the very end of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. It's in between the books of Jonah and Habakkuk. No, Naaman is in, in between there. It's, it's hard to find. I'll give you a minute to find it. It's Micah 5.2. In my Bible, it's in page uh, 1376. That might help like one of you that has the same Bible. Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2. And this, this is a verse that is sometimes read around Christmas time. And you may just think, oh, it's a cool Christmas verse. It's from the New Testament. No, it's from the Old Testament. This was written before Jesus came. Micah 5.2 says this. Is everybody there? Still getting there? I'll give you another second. Uh, it's right before, it's, it's like right middle, middle plus a little is what I got. Micah 5.2 says, although you Bethlehem, Arapatha. Arapatha is the area, I guess in our terms, it'd be kind of like the county, El Paso, Colorado Springs, County El Paso, kind of what it means. You Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and ancient times. It's about the Messiah. This, this Micah 5, 2, if you read the rest of it, talks about the coming of the Messiah. Predicted in the Old Testament, it says that Messiah is going to come out of Bethlehem. This was written before Jesus came. Let me show you another one. I'm going to show you four. Isaiah 7, 4. And by the way, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Yeah, you know that because you're, you know, you've done Christmas a couple times by now. Isaiah 7, 4. The Isaiah, that scroll that I mentioned that was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's 10 inches by about 24 feet long, that we have a copy of it right around the top, right before Christ came to the world. We have a copy handwritten in that Dead Sea Scroll 
uh, says this about the coming of Messiah. Now, at the end of Sunday school, I'm going to read Isaiah 53, and it's going to blow your mind that, that the Messiah was predicted, and all these events happened exactly as they were foretold. Isaiah 7:14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child, and she will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, a Hebrew word meaning God with us. Does anyone know of a virgin that claimed to have a child in the city of Bethlehem? Duh. <laughs> yeah, we don't even need to say it. Mary. Let me show you one more. This, this, follow me if you can. This is going to make a lot of sense when I explain it in just a minute here. Uh, this next one is Jeremiah 23. The book of Jeremiah uh, right after the book of Isaiah. Just turn a couple pages. It's before the book of Ezekiel. Jeremiah 23 <coughs> is also another prophetic uh, coming Messiah chapter. You can read it later. And I, uh, Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says this. Jeremiah 23 verse 5. It starts off and says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a, r- a righteous branch a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name with which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And what I want to draw attention to is that first part, that verse five. Days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, son of David, a son of Judah is what it goes on to say. And there's other verses that say that the coming Messiah, the anointed one, will come from the line of Judah from the line of David. And so the, there's four prophecies that you can't, if you were claiming to be the Messiah, you couldn't control where, you can't control where you're born, right? Think about it for a second. You can't. You can't control who your mom was, right? No, it was just given to you. You can't control who your family lineage is. A Jewish person uh, from the line of Judah, specifically from the line of David. Jesus meets all of those. I'm going to show you one more. Th- this one is, in my mind, the coolest one. Turn a few more pages towards the end of the Bible, past the book of Ezekiel to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9 Yes, you did catch a niner in there. Daniel 9 25. I'm going to write some things on the board so I'm getting ready to do that while you turn to Daniel 9 25 says this. Now, if you know about Daniel, a little bit about the book of Daniel, Daniel was uh, a prophet, an Israel Jewish prophet who had been captured from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's been destroyed, uh, all of Israel's destroyed, the temple's destroyed, and he now is in Babylon, and he's writing this prophetic book, and this is what it says. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's now in rubbles. But from the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens, seven sevens, and 62 sevens. All right. Let me do some quick math for you. Are you ready for this? Seven times seven is? Man, you guys are so good. 62 times seven? I hear like, what? 432. 434. I have it in my hand and I'm still doing it wrong. Because they're so smart. 434. Seven sevens and 62 sevens. This is commonly used as, if we use it as years, we have seven sevens, 49, and 62 sevens. Where do these two numbers add up to? A lot. I'm going to write it down here. If you, Hopefully you can see it. 483. You can kind of see that, I guess. 483 is the number of years. Now, from when the, the time when uh, the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, you could read about it, by the way, in the book of Ezra. Ezra is, is in charge of restoring the temple and Jerusalem. And there's two dates. I mean, this is a very ancient time. And so if you, depending on which calendar you go by, it could be um, the year 485 or 444 BC when 
Jerusalem when the edict to restore Jerusalem was put in place. Now, if you do some more math, 485 BC minus this year is what? 2 AD. 445 minus this date? I'll just give it to you. 38. Do we know of anyone in the history of humanity that claimed to be the Messiah? That was born of a virgin. They were born in Bethlehem. They uh, were from a Jewish tribe of Judah from the line of David that lived sometime between, what do we say, 2 AD-ish, between 38 AD-ish, depending on different calendars. Do we know of any, and if anyone claiming to be the Messiah that fit all four of those? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Rhetorical, man. <laughs> Just kidding. Just I don't want to make fun of it. Thank you for raising your hand. That was very kind. <laughs> Jesus fits all four of these ancient... You realize that this is ancient prophecy from the Old Testament being fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus claiming to be the Messiah fulfills all, of, all four of these. There's a mathematician that, uh, that said... There, the mathematician took eight of these prophecies. There's, there's about a hundred or more prophecies like this. A mathematician took eight of these Eight that he that a Messiah could not just claim to be that couldn't. I mean, you can kind of like if the Messiah claims that uh, he's the one because he he. Re- I mean, there's prophecies that I should should have planned what I was about to say. <laughs> Never mind. The fulfillment of eight of these prophecies. If if one person was to fulfill eight of these prophecies, like these four that I gave you, if they were to fulfill eight of these, it's as it's like winning the lotto. Lotto is like one in a million chances, right? Right. Lotto's one in a million. A million is 10 to, if you know your scientific, what's it called? Scientific notation. It's 10 to the sixth power is what a million is. And so this guy, this mathematician, calculated eight of these. How many, okay, how many people were born in Bethlehem out of all the people in the world? How many people at least claim that their mother was a virgin? And you guys know how that works, right? So it's kind of impossible. I mean, so, I mean, it's just a claim. Someone can claim that they're having a baby and still be a virgin. It's a claim. Let's say all the people ever born in, born in Bethlehem, all the people that were ever Jewish and born from the line of David, all the people that were lived around this time period, 2-ish AD to 38-ish AD, and um, uh, what was the other one? Maybe that's all of them. He has eight of them. He says the chances of that happening, of a person picking uh, that just randomly happening, is kind of like winning the lotto. He says it's 10 to the 17th power. If you're a mathematician, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a huge number. If you're not a mathematician, let me tell you what that means. Uh, there's an there's a analogy that says if you have a silver dollar, and I brought one, I just for, I forgot where it went. If anybody sees a silver dollar, it's mine. But uh, you know what a silver dollar, it's about this big. If you have 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars, that is enough to fill the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Any Texans? Anybody ever driven across Texas? It's a huge state. You don't mess with it. <laughs> All of Texas, two feet deep of these silver dollars. You throw, you mark one. You take one, you mark it, you throw it in the pile of Texas. You mix it all up so it's randomly in there somewhere. Um, you send someone in a plane and have them skydive down somewhere in Texas. So they're in Texas. Who knows where they're at? Probably Amarillo or something weird, right? And then you let them travel as far as they want to travel blindfolded. And so they're just walking along. Then randomly at some point they stop. They reach down in two feet of silver dollar nests. They pick up a silver dollar. What are the chances that this silver dollar is going to be the same one that was marked? 10 to the 17th power. That is the same chances that Jesus has, that one person has, a Messiah has, in fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. That to me is amazing. And having just looked at some of them, it's amazing. And this, by the way, is what I showed my friend in Utah. Going back to the original story I I talked about, my friend in Utah, I, I sat down and showed him I showed him some of these prophecies from Micah and Isaiah. And I said, would you look at these prophecies? This was written a long time ago, before the coming of Christ. It was predicted that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he'd have a virgin mother. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? And he's like, yeah. And at the end of that conversation, we were having coffee. He said, you know what? I believe that the Bible's true because of these things you just showed me. I know that this book is the word of God. 
and yet he still wasn't able. He, he didn't make that faith decision. Augustine puts it like this. On the back of your skillet, we always have a sweet quote down at the bottom. And uh, St. Augustine or Augustine, if you're like a scholar, you always pronounce it Augustine because it makes you sound smarter or something. And uh, St. Augustine or Augustine, who lived around 400 AD, a pretty prolific Christian author, uh, wrote a lot of stuff like Confessions before Usher did and uh, influenced C.S. Lewis and lots of stuff like that. He put it like this. Let me read this quote for you. It says, Understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek understanding that you may believe, but believe that you may have understanding. And that's a, it's a quote that just, to me it says, you know what, we can prove to someone that the Bible is true until they're literally blue in the face. But there, at some point there's a step of faith. Some may say a leap of faith. Some may say a step of faith that says, you know, I believe that this book is true. I realize you're showing me these prophecies and there, there's no other account for it other than Jesus is the Messiah and what he said was true. But at some point there is that step of faith that you must take that says, yes, I do believe that this is true. I'm going to allow it to come into my heart. I had an old youth pastor that always used to preach about the head and the heart and how there's about 18 inches between your head and the heart. And some, sometimes the hardest distance to travel is the 18 inches between your head, knowing it and truly believing it in your heart. I want to read for you that Isaiah 53 passage. And I'm going to kind of skip around. So uh, if you would, just, uh, you could turn there if you want, but if you would, just maybe even close your eyes. You're going to think, I'm just going to prepare you for what I'm about to read. You're going to th- think that I am reading straight out of the New Testament. But I am not going to be reading out of the New Testament. I am going to be reading out of Isaiah, the scroll that was found that's 24 feet long, about 10 inches wide, that was written 430-ish years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled this prophecy. And as I read this, and then I'm going to close in prayer, actually, I want you to, you're going to think I'm reading from the New Testament, but I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament, something that was written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. Here's what it says. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, so he will sprinkle many nations. Surely he took on our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we are considered, he was considered stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You think I'm reading out of the New Testament, don't you? It's, it's, it's uncanny how this was written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ. I just imagine Isaiah, I'm going to read a little bit more, but I imagine Isaiah writing these words down and possibly not really knowing what he's writing. He just kind of wrote it, and is like, this is awesome. This is amazing, but I, I really don't know what it means. We know what it means because we live after Christ and we, we know that he fulfilled these prophecies. It says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own ways and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, iniquity means sin, of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life, excuse me, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowing, but excuse me, by his knowing of my righteous servant, so this is God talking, let me get this right. By his knowing, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquity. This is coming right out of Isaiah, something written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. These prophecies give evidence of truth that the Bible is what it says it is. That it's God-breathed. It is the word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we stand in amazement of your word. We stand in amazement that this is a book that has been God-breathed. And God, we can't even begin to understand the depths of how you allowed this book to be hand-copied through thousands of years. Some of these pages are 3,000, 2,000 years old. God, we are amazed by your word on this earth to us that it has been God-breathed. 
And God, God, we don't worship this book. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you for the testimony of truth that you've given to us through this book. God, we love you. We praise you. We honor this book that you've been given to us. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.